3: Remember, horses, our transportation mode of choice for, I don't know, maybe 10,000 years?
4: Not anymore.
3: Oh, well, what about typewriters or the telegraph? Mechanical adding machines? Well... Siri, what's a typewriter?
2: I'm sorry. I'm afraid I can't answer that.
3: In each case, the successor was faster and more efficient than the 1.0 version. But what about that ultimate component of human society, the human?
4: Are we going to replace that as well? And that would mean us, including you. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. It's meet your replacements on Big Picture Science. Okay. Scenario one. Meet the robots. Humans have employed machines to ease our workload since, well, since the ancient Greeks, at least, maybe even earlier. When the Industrial Revolution came along, our reliance on powered machinery prompted a dramatic expansion of the economy, one that we've enjoyed ever since. So what's coming next?
3: George Mason University economist Robin Hansen says that slow and steady growth is in our future. So no surprises there. That's good news. No, but that's just the short term, because what Robin Hansen is interested in is what follows.
2: Then there could be a sudden big dramatic transition and everything changes all at once real fast. Well, well, give me an example of what could do that. Eventually, when machines are a lot smarter than they are today, they could be able to do almost all the things that people do, and then we are in a very different situation. Then the economy can change radically because uh, you would rather basically hire a machine to do things than a person. Well, that doesn't sound very promising for the humans on the planet. I mean,
3: at the moment we tend to outsource to the machines, and now I'm really talking robots, you know, repetitive tasks. Put this weld here or, or sort these objects there, whatever. But if they can do, if you will, creative things, things that require intelligence and, and, and new ideas, I mean, where
2: does that leave us? Well, it depends on who owns the robots, really, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even today, uh, if... We learn how to automate a task and you're a company that has that task being automated and now your labor costs are cheaper, Uh, you're better off. You can sell your products cheaper and your customers are better off. And uh, as long as we're thinking about the whole world economy and what we can all do, we're all overall better off because we can do more with uh, the same resources we've had before. So, in in that sense, a future robotic world economy would be richer and have more capacity than ours, and it could do more things. Now, you'd want to own a fraction of that so that you could get your share, and if you don't, things may not look so good for you, but overall, things would look bright. Well, you know, to be honest,
3: Robin, if you told me this at a party and you said, look, it's all going to be okay, all you have to do is... Own some of you, you know, these machines that might be replacing you. If if you're a tax accountant, I just name something. All right, today to be a tax accountant, you have to be a human, right? Yeah. But but let's say we invent a machine that uh, you know smart enough to do tax accounting. Uh, how how is it going to be? How is it going to make me feel better to know that that's okay, you can invest in the stock of those
2: machines and and you'll still make a living? Well, Seth, let me clue you into a a fact you might not realize. You're gonna have to retire someday. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And when you retire, it'll be because uh, you aren't as able or interested in working. Uh, And the way you'll be able to retire is by converting some of the income you've acquired over time here into other forms, stock, real estate, uh, patents, whatever, and later on you can use those resources in your retirement. So in some sense, the entire human race is going to retire. Yeah, but but what about the kids? I mean, they don't want to retire at the age of 22. Well, uh, you might be able to join the robots. So uh, we're talking about artificial intelligence, about robots, machines that are smart, but it's possible to perhaps transfer our intelligence and smarts and identity from these meat bodies we're in to robotic bodies. So in that case, you could become the robots. So
3: instead of beating them, we're going to join them. Some of us. Now, your idea for machine intelligence, Robin, is not to understand how thinking works, to somehow you know, work out what, what goes on in our brains, but simply to mimic it. Am I, am I correct? You want to build, as it were, sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, a computer
2: analog of our brains. If you're trying to copy somebody's software, there's two basic approaches. One is you can look at what it does and then try to make a work-alike, say design something that achieves the same function. The other way you can do it is just to copy their software. Maybe copy it over to a different machine, change the operating systems or something, but just copy it. So those are the two basic approaches to making smart robots. We can either try to design robots that are as smart as people by looking at what people do and trying to reproduce the kind of reasoning we see, or we can just copy the intelligence out of a human brain more directly. So the idea there, it's called an emulation, is to look at individual brain cells in a particular human brain and copy down exactly which cells are connected to which and what types they are, and then make a computer program that emulates that whole brain by having emulations of each of those cells and how they're connected.
3: Now, this is something that's going on, isn't it? I mean, aren't there research projects today that are trying to, if you will, sort of map out the the, the very detailed
2: functioning of a, of a brain? Sure. Brain science is, is advancing by leaps and bounds, and we're making great progress, but we're still a long way off. I'm not telling you this has happened in the next 10 or 20 years. But over a century, perhaps, yeah, eventually this is coming. The the real question might be, will the other kind of artificial intelligence get there first, or will the emulations get there first? Well, let's go
3: with your scenario that we're going to sort of uh, emulate a human brain. Doesn't it matter whose brain we emulate? I mean, if we (laughs) we take one of the dunces that was in my fraternity house, uh, you know, you'll get one class of, of thinking machine. But if you take somebody who just won the Nobel Prize,
2: maybe it'd be a somewhat more useful machine? Right, it becomes more like a winner-take-all market. So as it's been noticed in movies or music, what we tend to do is we take the very best musicians or actors and we put them in you know, songs and movies and we make millions of copies of those and we sell those for lots of money, and it's the few very best musicians and actors who make most of the money. Similarly, the emulation economy would be looking for the very few best humans who are most suited for being productive in this new world, and it would make billions of copies of them, and the rest of us, not so much. If you had to uh, sort of paint a picture in my mind of what the world
3: might look like 100 years, 150 years from now, when this has all transpired, what do I picture? I, I don't see downtown uh, New York or anything else with, you know, filled with skyscrapers that are filled
2: with people wearing ties and doing something. Well, you should picture really big, dense cities, maybe about the size of New York, but instead of holding 10 million people, it would hold a trillion or more. <laughs> they would might leap 10 times higher into the sky. They might be so dense with computer hardware running so fast that it literally glows. You might imagine vast winds of cool air pulled in and come into hot air shooting out the tout. Because basically, it's using huge amounts of dense computer hardware to create dense urban concentrations of workers uh, working hard producing. But are we then, if you will, the dogs of the future? I mean, you know, where we've got these masters and
3: they're actually intellectually our superiors, but we still get a, a couple of meals a day, get to walk around the neighborhood with them and so forth. I mean, is, is, is that our future? Were there
2: pets? Well, you might think about our distant ancestors and what they think about us, our forager or farmer ancestors. What do people who do subsistence farming on a flat plain somewhere think of those people living off in cities, uh, working in factories and big, tall buildings? I mean, how do they think about them? In some sense, you know, they are our ancestors, and uh, we are proud of them in some sense, of having come from them, and we respect them for having originated us, but somehow we, we do think we're better than them. And so that's what the AIs will think of us? Probably. Our descendants may fondly remember their human ancestors and and respect their pioneer spunk, but still, in the end of the day, they might think they're better than us.
3: (laughs) Well, they might think that because it might be true. But Will these entities, I don't know what to call them anymore. Will they have their
2: own social life, their own communities, their own parties? Yes, of course. So emulations are psychologically human. That is, they remember being a human. They feel like a human. They have the same human uh, emotions and urges and inclinations. Uh, you'll have to like convince them to do a job. They won't just do it for ask, saying pretty please, usually. Uh, they'll want to have some leisure. They'll enjoy stories. Uh, they'll like to travel. Uh, they would like all the things we like because you know they are an emulation of us, so they are psychologically human. I'm just guessing here, Robin, but I'm not sure that the scenario
3: you're depicting here makes you really popular at parties. I mean, don't, don't you get people saying, hey, look, you're, you're talking about tremendously diminishing the human experience. I mean, there's self-worth, there's satisfaction. All of that comes from having a job. And you're painting a future in which, well, the only people that really have the interesting jobs are not people. They're synthetic
2: people. They're emulations of people. If you had asked our distant ancestors what they would think of us, if you could have described to them what our world is like and shown them some representative pictures and scenarios, They would have been amazed by many things, but I'm not sure they would have overall been thrilled by it. We have rejected many of our ancestors' deepest-held beliefs and deepest-held traditions. And our descendants are likely to do that to us as well. Robin Hanson, thank you so very much for talking with me. You're most welcome.
4: Robin Hanson is Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Hey, Gary. What's up? I'm just going to grab a cup of coffee. Will you man the controls here?
5: Oh, yeah, no problem. Let's see, VU meters look good, um, it's not really much to man. All this talk about replacing humans, I wonder if I'm expendable. I can answer that. Of course. Hey, what's up? Aren't you curious as to who I am? You don't think I know the drill on big picture science? You're some prophetic futuristic version of me, right? That I am, and I'm more capable than you. Let me guess, you can edit the interviews faster? With fewer mistakes. And do great voice impersonations. That are more regionally accurate. Here's Southwest Trenton, New Jersey. Hey, you guys want to go get a pizza? That's pretty general tri state, but I get it. The message is that I, Gary Niederhoff, am capable of being replaced by an intelligent machine. Well, that's right! You should be more worried. But that's how it works on this program. We blue sky about the future and the frightening possibility that humans are designing their replacements and then illustrate with some sort of allegory or whatever this is. I'm prepared for it. No one is prepared to be replaced by a machine. Well, maybe not. But Especially machine replacing a machine. What? What? Replacing a human. Now this I wasn't prepared for. What sort of machine intelligence are you? I am the advanced intelligence that will replace you, the replacement of Ga- Oh, this is good. Not possible. I have regenerative learning algorithms. That's child's logic. I possess meta-network quantum computing. Oh, uh, but I have four billion gigs of memory. I have silicon neurons. And I am conscious. Oh. This is like alien versus predator, but without all the blood. So go ahead and supplant Gary. Enjoy being an overlord while it lasts. Because with Moore's law and the coming explosion of artificial intelligence, you too will be redundant. No, I won't. I won't be redundant. I won't. I am singular, if not the singularity. Hey, have some dignity, will you? I mean, you're still me. (laughs) Bye-bye. So futuristic machines will still have creepy laughs. That hasn't improved at all. Your emergent consciousness is hypothetical, not inevitable. Wait, what's this red switch on the board? You can't stop the future. Let me just switch it. Off. The future is
1: now!
5: No way, it couldn't have been that easy.
4: Thanks for watching the Electronic Scary. Everything okay?
5: Yep, for now.
3: So you're confident you can keep the robots under control, right? Remain essential and in charge, right? But what about more advanced AI, more advanced artificial intelligence, or a genetically engineered human hybrid?
4: It's meet your replacements on Big Picture Science.
3: We have no problem replacing old technology with new. But what about replacing ourselves? We've heard from Robin Hanson about the coming revolution involving machinery that can do jobs that today only human smarts can tackle. But as we think about our replacements, keep in mind that these intricate slabs of silicon are not the only technology that could supplant human creativity. Scenario two.
4: Ready for super-advanced artificial intelligence? Luke Malhauser is executive director of the Machine Intelligence Research Institute.
6: You don't necessarily need a robot body in order to replace human labor, because a lot of human labor is knowledge work and thinking through things and doing statistical analyses. And all of that you could do in principle with a machine that was smart in that domain and just sitting in a server somewhere without any arms or legs.
4: And when you say smart, how smart could they
6: get? Well, the important thing to remember for the next several decades is that machines will be very, very smart at some particular things, like playing chess or doing arithmetic. And they'll be relatively dumb at other things, like doing Nobel Prize-worthy science. And they'll be maybe roughly human level at some other things, like recognizing traffic signs and driving cars. And as time progresses, more and more of the things that computers can do, that AIs can do will transition from being you know, subhuman performance to superhuman performance. But I think for many decades still, we'll be at this point where computers are replacing that specific job and that specific worker and that specific worker. Many decades from now, uh, you'll get to this point where machines have the sort of thing that humans have, which is general intelligence or an ability to just look at arbitrary domains and figure them out. So the human you know looks at the honeycomb structure and looks at the dams that the beavers bridge and says like ah oh, I see how to do it and builds a you know honeycomb structure bridge that's extra strong and we can sort of transfer knowledge between domains in that way and figure out problems in new domains and new environments.
4: Now when we talk about this intelligence of computers and this advanced intelligence that you said when, when they have a, a kind of general intelligence that humans have Would these computers also have feelings and would they be conscious? And does that necessarily go hand in hand with advanced intelligence?
6: Well, it depends how we program them. So as humans, we tend to assume that things like feelings and consciousness go along with intelligent behavior because All of the, you know, creatures in the world that we see that have as intelligent behavior as we have also have consciousness and feelings. But that's just because we have a shared evolutionary history. And machines do not, in particular, have a shared evolutionary history. They have incredibly different mind designs. Like you and I, if we took our brains out of our skulls and placed them side by side, they'd be almost indistinguishable. But machine intelligences are much, much more varied than that. And so in principle, you could certainly have machines that have very intelligent intelligent behavior, but no feelings or consciousness. Or potentially you could have machines that have intelligent behavior and feelings in consciousness. But we, we don't understand very much yet about how consciousness actually works, and so we don't yet know how to build machines that are conscious.
4: Well, when you talk about this trajectory, and that's what we are talking about, what's happening in the future, um, it sounds like it's inevitable that we'll be working closely with computers and that computers will be smarter than us. And all of this may come about by way of what's referred to in the community as the intelligence explosion. That sounds fairly dangerous um, and dramatic. What is the intelligence explosion?
6: Well, the intelligence explosion is this idea that I. J. Good had in the late '50s and early '60s. I. J. Good worked with Alan Turing during World War II with the very you know earliest computers to decrypt the German Enigma code and help win the war. And many people have talked about this concept since. But the basic idea is that you know once we get to that point, many many years from now, where machine intelligences have the general intelligence thing that humans have, then machine intelligences will be able to figure out how to do science, how to do computer programming, all of that. And what that implies is that these machine intelligences, among the many things they do, they'll be able to do AI research. Which means they'll be able to improve their own algorithms, improve their own abilities, improve their own, you know, problem-solving skills. Uh, which means that there might be what's called an explosion in, in intelligence, where the AI can very quickly improve its own intelligence without these, you know, slow ancient humans in the loop.
4: So the intelligence explosion will come about because machines will be teaching themselves and building their
6: successors. That's right. Right now, if you want to make an AI smarter, you have to have a bunch of humans contributing to the code and trying out different methods and uh, sitting down and scratching out mathematical equations on a piece of paper. And humans are very slow. Our neurons fire very slowly. We need sleep. Sometimes we get mad at our bosses and quit. Uh, it's a very, very inefficient process to for producing knowledge. But AIs don't need to sleep. Their you know, quote-unquote neurons fire thousands of times faster than ours do. They don't ever need to rest. They do perfect mathematical calculations, never make mistakes. Um, in principle, they could, you know, avoid getting mad at their bosses if they have them. And so the idea is just that once you've got an AI that's able to do science and AI research on itself, it can improve itself very quickly relative to how quickly we can improve AIs now with humans.
4: No, we don't have AI right now. We don't have artificial intelligence at this moment.
6: We don't have the thing that's called general AI, uh, or sometimes AGI. So there's no AI with machine intelligence or human level intelligence, whatever that would mean. There's just AIs that are very good at really specific narrow things, like IBM's Watson computer can beat the best humans at jeopardy, but if you ask it to do the dishes, it'll be really dumb about doing the dishes.
4: Or if it doesn't do the dishes, then it's pretty smart because it got out of doing the dishes. So in the, in the future, where we have AI, Could these machines, this artificial intelligence, replace humans
6: entirely? Well, in principle, almost all cognitive scientists agree that the way that human intelligence works is through cognitive algorithms. It's information processing. And of course, we know that you can do information processing on a computer. So in principle, it looks like physics is completely compatible with machines replacing all of what humans can do. Now, in practice, it's hard to say how quickly that will happen or whether there will be barriers to that happening. Uh, some people, for example, suggest that humans will not want themselves to be replaced, and so will resist AI research and maybe regulate it very heavily. But I find it hard to believe that that would work in the long run because there are also so many positive incentives for developing AI. AI is very powerful. If you know, In principle, if you develop a machine that can reason in general about the world, and do it 10,000 times faster than existing humans, then that AI would be really, really useful for curing cancer if you can get it to do what you want. The tricky thing is just making sure that we do it right so that the powerful AIs do what we want instead of what we don't want.
4: Could you envision a scenario in which humans are made so redundant, uh, they're driven to extinction by machines, by super-intelligent machines?
6: That is certainly one way that it could play out. I think it's important to admit that things might turn out very, very badly for humans when we have created creatures that are more capable of achieving their goals in the world than we are, because then we have to worry, well, what are their goals? Uh, If they're more capable of achieving their goals in the world than we are, then it's going to be them steering the future rather than us.
4: But couldn't an alternative goal be to help humans and to cure all disease and keep humans as its companion in perpetuity?
6: So that's the goal. That's what we should be trying to do, right? Um, and the trouble is, how do you express this goal of, like, do what humans want? How do you say that in math? Because AIs are made of math, and it's, it's actually really hard to express a goal that precisely. So, for example, if you, if you stated the goal, you found some precise way to state the goal, Uh, Okay, AI, you are going to uh, maximize human pleasure. Well, what it might do then is just hook us all up to a heroin drip or something like that. And then we're like, oh, darn it, that's not what we wanted. Uh, And then you have to go back and try again, and you might fail a lot of times. It actually goes back to these old folk tales about be careful what you wish for when presented with a genie. And AI is kind of like a very, very powerful system, sort of like a genie. Uh, but it will only do exactly what you tell it to do.
4: Although you might encourage kids who are studying math to stick with it, because who knows, they could be the ones that end up writing the equation that saves the
6: world. If you're a young math prodigy, then uh, I want to talk to you, because uh, I might need you to save the world. I actually wrote somewhere else that, you know, despite what we might have read in comic books, because of the overwhelming power of AI to transform the world, it turns out that the skills needed to save the world are not brawn or the power of flight or whatever. It's uh, mathematical ability.
4: So it's, it's not Spider-Man when he's leaping from building to building. It's when he's in his laboratory figuring out That's right. the, the equations. That's right. Luke, thank you so much for speaking with us.
6: Thank you. My pleasure.
4: Luke Mollhauser is executive director
3: of the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. In
4: 1997, cell biologist Stuart Newman pulled a stunt
3: of sorts. It was designed to garner some notice, which it did. But he wasn't after fame. Rather, he wanted to draw attention to what he thought was a dangerous development in genetics.
4: And that's what prompted him to apply for a patent for a human z half-human, half-chimp. Now, there's no such creature in existence, and Professor Newman wanted to be sure there never would be. But he knew we had the technology to do it, to mix and match organisms using both biotechnology and synthetic biology, and he was afraid that that combination would take us down a dangerous path. So he tried to patent a human Z. The attention that it would bring would underscore the ethical hazards of biotech patenting.
3: And he was prescient. The Supreme Court has recently ruled that human genes cannot be patented, so that's a step toward the protection he'd like, and maybe the court's decision will help protect what it means to be human. But at the time Stuart Newman applied for the patent for a human Z nearly 15 years ago, scientists had already taken steps towards a unique genetic hybrid. Could this be scenario three?
0: Well, the technology had actually been developed um, to make something called a GEEP, which was uh, an intermediate animal between a goat and a sheep, and that was done in the middle 1980s. And the technique was to take cells of early embryos and mix the cells together. And even though there's at least 12 million years separating the evolution of the um, sheep and the goat, cells of mammals and other vertebrate organisms can recognize each other and communicate with each other and build something together, even though they come from different species. And did the geep survive? It did,
4: yes. Now, the humanzee would be part human, part chimpanzee. How did you imagine this creature? I mean, just in your imagination.
0: Well, there have been all sorts of literary uh, embodiments of composite organisms. Uh, Frankenstein's monster is one. Uh, The the Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells is another example of mixtures that were um, part human. The motivation that was placed in the patent application was that you could have animals that would be able to donate Hearts and different body parts to people who were ill, and they would not fall under human rights regulations. So we could use these humanzees or these part-human organisms uh, if they weren't sufficiently human to be covered by um, the standards of human rights.
4: I see. So it wouldn't just be to create a novel creature that would be exotic to us. It would be a creature whose organs we might harvest to help human That's health. right.
0: That's right. And um, I didn't want to do any of this. I thought it was fairly abhorrent to make these creatures. But I saw from the scientific literature that it was possible, and I could write an application to show how it could be done. And I realized that there were many entrepreneurs, business people, and, and possibly medical people and scientists that would find some interest in, uh, in making such organisms, and I just wanted to get there first to raise questions about it, to create a discussion about it, and if I were awarded the patent, I could actually block its use.
4: If you were awarded the patent, now this was more than 15 years ago, this is in 1997 that you applied for this,
0: uh, you were denied on what grounds? Well, the Patent Office um, raised a number of objections. Um, The first thing is they said it was inappropriate subject matter because it could potentially be too human to patent. And why did they think it was too human to patent? Well, the Constitution says that human beings can't be held in slavery against their will. So there was a kind of uh, interest in uh, not having anything that was too close to being a human being even considered to be patented. And now I said in response to that, that um, I could concoct this invention to make it less than half human. And I said, is that good enough, you know, or less than a quarter human? And in fact, there were no standards, there are no legal standards for what is too human to patent. You could see that the patent office was ready to consider certain kinds of modified organisms as not part of nature, but as human inventions. So I said, well, why isn't my part human, part chimpanzee, or part human, part mouse organism an invention and not a human? And they couldn't answer me.
4: Let's say that your patent ha- had been um, accepted and that you had a patent now on the human Z. What would you have prevented happening by right. owning that patent?
0: Yes. So. Um, When you own a patent, um, all you can do is sue whoever tries to use it without paying you money, or you could deny people licenses. You can't actually prevent anybody from doing it. And in fact, there have been research groups that have, have made part human organisms by mixing together human cells and mouse cells or human cells and rat cells. So these things are being done. My interest was, first of all, creating discussion, which actually occurred. There were documentaries about it. There were newspaper and magazine articles about it. So I think I got the discussion underway. Many more people were aware of what the technology was capable of after I filed this patent than before.
4: Well, let's look at a cloning technology and where it is now. This is more than 15 years since you applied for this patent. There's another development in the technology or in some of the approaches that you're concerned with. In the last year, researchers in the U.K. and and in the U.S. sought approval for creating and implanting genetically modified human embryos. So this raises the idea of genetically modified humans. What is the state of genetically modified humans?
0: Well, so far we don't have any approved protocols for making genetically modified humans. The motivation of this particular one in England is to prevent the propagation of what are called mitochondrial diseases. So the mitochondria of any human individual comes from that person's mother even though both the mother and father have mitochondria in their cells the sperm mitochondria does not get conveyed in general into the offspring so if a mother has had a child which has sustained uh, a problem because of the mutations that occur in the mother's mitochondria then she'll know that her next child is very likely to sustain the same problem she might want to avoid that happening and um, one way to avoid that happening is to take an egg from that woman and do a cloning procedure where you take the nucleus of her egg and you put it in somebody else's egg and that other person has um, healthy mitochondria then you fertilize the egg and you get an individual that now has three parents it has the mother who donated the nucleus the mother who donated the egg without the nucleus and the father.
4: And because you're getting the donation of the egg and also the DNA from two different women, and then you also have the father's sperm, that's what constitutes genetic modification. So that baby would be considered a GM human?
0: It would be a GM human, and it would be a cloned human. Since you're taking the nucleus from one egg and putting it into another egg, it would be uh, a human that would be cloned, but not cloned from the somatic cell or the genetically complete cell of a single individual, but at least its maternal contribution, its mother's contribution, would be accomplished by this cloning procedure. So it's it's the same technique as cloning.
4: So I see that this, this concerns you, this development. But what would you say to those parents who want to raise and give birth to a healthy baby and avoid a terribly either disfiguring or painful, more importantly, painful genetic disease? And this might be the way to do it.
0: Well, it is a dilemma. And you, you could say that there are many things that people sustain that are very unfortunate. And if we could harvest organs from other people, for example, or if we could do something that is, for one reason or another, socially unacceptable, they might benefit from it. Now, here you're not talking about an existing person that you're trying to cure of a disease. You're talking about a prospective person, a person that doesn't exist yet. And you're saying, I want to concoct a a mixture of cells that will allow this particular woman to have a genetically related child that is free of disease. Well, that's not really something about her health. It's something that she might desire. There are people who are infertile also that can't have children as well. So the question for us is whether we want to breach certain barriers that are kind of generally recognized as barriers, and this is genetically engineering humans.
4: You use the term breaching the barrier, and I wonder what you see on the other side of that. So on one case, the one we've been discussing where you have the possibility of using cloning and creating a genetically modified human that might prevent disease, um, is also the concern that it might open the door to all sorts of modification and some that are less noble. And, And what might those be?
0: Well... There are many people that are concerned, let's say, that a particular couple has a propensity towards obesity. And they say, you know, if we could only genetically modify our prospective offspring to substitute our genes with other genes that don't have that same propensity. The obesity one you might say well it's not so as serious Um, somebody might say well my family's all very short and so is my husband's Uh, why don't we put in some tall genes we get to a point where it's very hard to say well that's not important to me so it shouldn't be important to you everything will be up for grabs and there will be very little basis for drawing a line you know it's okay for the breast cancer gene but it's not okay for the obesity gene, or it's okay for the obesity gene, but it's not okay for the blonde hair gene, and and, and so on. So society has certain taboos. The um, taboo against genetically engineering humans is a recent one, because we haven't had the possibility of doing it before, and I think we should respect those. They're there not because we were too ignorant to do these things, but they're there because we actually change our nature as uh, individuals and a collective culture by doing them.
4: Stuart Newman, thank you so much for speaking to us.
0: Thank you. Stuart Newman is
3: a professor of cell biology and anatomy at New York Medical College.
4: Next, the technological smarts that allow us to engineer our successors may also be the tools that save us. It's Meet Your Replacements on Big Picture Science.
0: A lot happens every day. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Okay, so there are a lot of technologies in the pipeline that could threaten our intellectual supremacy on this planet.
4: Right, the robots could take over, or we become subservient to artificial intelligence, or maybe we'll all just become weird genetic hybrids with wings. But there's another threat to humanity. comes from Mother Nature herself.
3: Life on Earth has faced near extinction before at the hands of natural catastrophe, after all. But next time might be different. Our technology... Maybe not just a source of concern, it may be what saves us.
4: Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction is the title of Annalee Newitt's book.
3: Okay, Annalee, you're talking about surviving a mass extinction. But, you know, that that information is sort of like how to replace your automatic transmission, which is not so useful unless I happen to have a car. Are we destined to confront a mass extinction?
1: I hesitate to use a word like destiny when I'm talking about natural processes on the planet, but if geological history is any guide, yes, we are going to hit another mass extinction. There have been five already in the past half billion years, and there's actually a number of signs right now that we could be in the early phases of the next one.
3: Well, uh, you say there have been five. That's that's really interesting. Of course, just about everybody knows about... The one 65 million years ago, right, that uh, wiped out the dinosaurs. But give give me some of the others.
1: Uh, Greatest hits of mass extinction. Um, I'll tell you about my favorite mass extinction because everyone has, has a favorite. And this was about 250 million years ago at the end of the Permian period. And at that time, all of the continents on the Earth were in one megacontinent, Pangaea. And up in the north, the area that became Siberia suffered through a supervolcano. Basically, what happened was huge vents opened in the earth, and lava just poured out for probably about a thousand years. And we can still see uh, geological evidence of this now in Siberia in an area called the Siberian traps. And with that lava came a ton of noxious gases, including a lot of greenhouse gases and carbon and ash. And ultimately, It wasn't these super volcanoes that caused this horrible mass extinction, but actually climate change caused by all of the greenhouse gases getting pumped into the environment. It was like a super industrial revolution that was going on. And over time, over about a million years, which, remember, is very fast in geological time, uh, 95 percent of species on the planet died out.
3: Okay, but that that was the greatest of the mass extinctions. It was. I mean, is is, is there some sort of I don't
1: know a fun one? I
3: I, I guess it's fun if you survive. Yeah, you have more acreage to yourself. But is there sort of an ISO standard for what is a mass extinction? I mean, if we were to wipe out you know London tomorrow, I I don't think that would count as a mass extinction. It
1: wouldn't. That's a really good question because London would be a very local extinction. So a mass extinction is when seventy five percent or more species on the planet die out over about a million or two million year period, so again, a very short period in geological time. And each of these mass extinctions that we've had on Earth so far has had different precipitating events, but what connects all of them is that generally these mass extinctions are correlated with climate change, so fluctuations in temperature, fluctuations in atmospheric content of gases, And that's what really sets off the cycle of death.
3: So you're saying that's what actually kills the flora and fauna. It isn't erupting volcanoes. It's what they've done to the climate eventually.
1: That's right. And even the famous asteroid strike at the end of the Cretaceous period that killed off the dinosaurs... What that really did was cause a nuclear winter that then gave way to a really hideous greenhouse gas situation and a, a greenhouse effect. So even the dinosaurs were not killed in a super explosion, which they, I think They weren't is, just
3: parboiled on the spot. I
1: know, and I, I feel like it's disappointing to people because they really want to imagine, like, the Earth was wrapped in fire. And it, it wasn't really. Actually, the Earth was wrapped in a highly reflective cloud that blocked the sunlight and that actually caused a mini ice age.
3: If you had to— uh put out there your most credible, I I won't say preferred, scenarios for mass extinction for either us or our descendants. What are you betting on?
1: Um, Right now, it looks like climate change is going to be the culprit for us coming up. And regardless of whether you think humans are contributing to it or not, we are living through a period where the climate is changing. It's heating up. And for us, for humans, and for all of the creatures in our ecosystems and all the plants and microbes, most of us have evolved to live in a cooler climate. And so as the climate gets warmer, it's going to become more and more difficult for, not so much for humans, but for all the things we like to eat to survive. And so if we continue toward this climate change type mass extinction, probably what we're going to see are a lot of famines.
3: Okay, but your book has a pretty optimistic premise here that, you know, maybe it isn't just the end. (laughs) I don't know. Write your wills now. I mean, it's all (laughs) going to go away. This is it. Whatever you're going to do in life. I mean, you're you're saying we can survive. How do we do that other than stocking up on, uh, you know, food that can last a long time?
1: Yeah, prepping as a species I think that it's inevitable that humans will survive. We've had these mass extinctions historically on the planet, and we possess a lot of the same characteristics as the survivor species that made it through these previous mass extinctions. We are very adaptable. We can live almost anywhere. We can eat garbage, actually quite good at eating garbage. And we also have a very large population size, so you can take out a lot of us and we'll stick around. But how will we survive well, is the question. So it's not a matter of will we survive? It's just will we survive under these famine conditions where the climate's fluctuating out of control? Or will we survive in a way that's a lot more comfortable for us and for our ecosystems? And that's really the question that I'm trying to tackle here is how do we forge a pathway toward a kind of survival that is comfortable and not a kind of survival that's actually worse than death?
3: Your book is actually titled Scatter, Adapt, and remember. Three-word titles being all oh, the rage, it seems. And <laughs> Maybe you could give me a very brief example of these approaches to survival, scatter, adapt, and remember.
1: Scattering just refers to instead of remaining at the site of a particular disaster, actually leaving and trying to find new habitats and new environmental niches to thrive in. And adapting is, of course, what you must do when you reach a new environment and live there where you can find food and shelter and things like that. Remember is about how humans can chronicle the knowledge that we've gained, not just as a species and as a culture, but also through science, through looking back through geological time and seeing what's happened to the planet before, looking back over our evolutionary history and seeing what's happened to our species and how we've made it through. And I think that is an incredibly important tool, our ability to look back at the past so we can plan for future disasters, whether those disasters are just climate change or an asteroid strike from space or gamma radiation frying off part of the atmosphere. These are all disasters that have happened to the planet in the past. And so we need to be thinking, if as a species we want to thrive, what is a good long-term plan for us? How do we construct our civilization and the trajectory of our civilization to actually make it for another million years as a species.
3: I was talking to someone just the other day who was rather pessimistic about the the future of humanity. He said, we're going to just nuke ourselves back to the Stone Age. And I thought about that for a moment. I said, well, you know, we could do a lot of destruction, but I don't know that we could go back to the Stone Age for very long because we have that knowledge of how to get out of the Stone Age. We have more knowledge than people in the Stone Age did, and that won't go away. There were cities in Europe that were, if you will, bombed back to the Stone Age. But, you know, 10 years, 20 years later, they were thriving cities again. So... Uh, I guess I share your optimism in that.
1: Yeah, and also I think one of the classic examples people always give about civilizational collapse is, remember when Rome collapsed? Because, of course, we all remember that. Uh, and suddenly, you know, civilization was at a standstill. And, yeah, you know why it was at a standstill? Because you only are looking at Europe. If you move even just a little bit beyond Europe and you look at the Middle East or you look at Asia, you see, huh, They had a scientific culture that was blooming. They were inventing new mathematical concepts. So civilization fell in Europe, but that doesn't mean that it fell everywhere. In fact, it was doing really great outside Europe. What
3: about inventing our successors? It could be that our uh, future robotic overlords, assuming that they (laughs) show up, uh, that they could be a greater and maybe a much more immediate threat than, I don't know, asteroids or volcanoes and stuff like
1: that. You know, I'm not really worried about robot overlords. And actually, one of the things that I think is really interesting about putting a robot on Mars, for example, is that I think it points a way forward to a civilization where humans evolve to the point that we are transforming ourselves using technology so that we can adapt to life beyond the planet. And I think that instead of a scenario where Robots take over. I think it's much more likely that humans will merge with robots and that eventually humans who do live beyond Earth may be partially technologically augmented or partially robotic. I think that it's really unlikely that there's going to be this conflict. I think the conflict might be between people who want to augment themselves technologically and people who are totally grossed out by that idea which I think we already are seeing kind of the bleeding edge of that conflict now.
3: You're a bit technically augmented yourself, aren't you?
1: I, I am a little bit technologically augmented. <laughs> I'd like to be a lot more. I mean, I'm waiting for my brain implant, so hurry up.
3: What, what, what have you got? Can you? Uh, are you willing ha- to tell me? You don't have to tell me, but
1: um, right now I have an RFID in my arm, which I actually implanted purely so that um, someone could hack it and show that it wasn't particularly a secure way to hold uh, private information. So what I'm saying is I have kind of a crappy implant. (laughs) (laughs) But but does it get get you through airports quicker? It doesn't actually, not at all. (laughs) No one's ever even found it on one of those airport scans. They're they're not very big. It's like a pet tag.
3: That's rather disappointing
1: there. I know. Okay,
3: so um, let me ask you this then, because years ago I gave a talk in which I was addressing how – long could humanity hope to survive because there were so many people who were writing kind of pessimistic scenarios about that we're, we're all doomed we're going to heck in a handbasket and all that stuff and i said you know probably we're just passing through a bottleneck because yes you invent the h-bomb but at the same time you invent the h-bomb you also invent rockets which means that you know a couple hundred years later you're going to be spread out and once we're spread out i think it's going to be hard to get rid of all humanity i think it's just going to be hard As a result, there may be a century or two there where you're vulnerable, but after that, you you can't get rid of all humans. Yeah, you get redundancy. Yeah. Okay. So that was sort of my sunny take here, although, of course, it does allow for the complete destruction of all humans on Earth or something like that. But I just want to come back finally to this point. If survival will be enough, I mean, could we survive and still see ourselves replaced?
1: So I think if we do survive over the long term, we are going to evolve into different species. So if by replaced, you mean that we evolve into something that's, you know, like the difference between Homo erectus and Homo sapiens. I mean, we look back at Homo erectus and we think, you know, they were early humans. They invented fire. Great job with that. Right. Flake tools were super awesome. And, you know, maybe we will evolve into another type of human or many other types of human that will look back on us and sort of say, wow, good job with the rockets. That was kind of a dumb idea, but it got us to space. So now that we have space elevators, everything is is groovy. So I I think, yes, we will be replaced. Eventually there will be no more Homo sapiens, except maybe in history books. But we will still be around. I mean, our our progeny will still be there. There will still be humans. there will still be creatures that look back on Earth as kind of the homeland, maybe. Um, or maybe not. Maybe they'll forget about Earth. Maybe that'll be a good idea.
3: <laughs> well, <laughs> should, I, should I keep my family photos or not? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I think you want to upload them and preserve them in a form that, you know, our, our distant progeny will be able to appreciate.
3: I'll get on that tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Annalee Newitz, thank you so very much for uh, talking with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Annalie
4: Newitz is editor of IO9.com and author of Scatter, Adapt and Remember how humans will survive a mass extinction. Well, it is hard to wrap our heads around some of these scenarios. The idea of things changing so dramatically in the way that we've outlined in the show, it's just hard to imagine.
3: Well, it is a special century that we live in, the 21st century, because no previous generation of humans had to confront the possibility that they might build a machine that truly replaces them.
4: Or create technology that could alter the chemistry of the planet and make it uninhabitable for some.
3: Well, call me a space geek, but I still think that salvation lies in spreading humans out let's build those rotating aluminum cans in space and move in
4: do we move in or do the genetic human hybrids with wings move in
3: those might be your neighbors
4: actually the wings don't sound so bad well there's no replacing our production team Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
4: There's no substitution for this show. Your ears have been attuned to meet your replacements. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program as well.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you like the way things were... Well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show.
5: And then he actually bragged that he had regenerative learning algorithms. <laughs> Have you ever heard anything so pathetic in your life?
0: I'm sorry.
2: I'm afraid I can't answer that. Hmm. <sighs>